What if someday I came up to the pulpit, some Sunday, and I prayed, Lord, I thank you that I can stand up here apart from all these sinners and know confidently I'm not like them. I'm here lead, up here leading worship because I don't need it. But they desperately do. Look at them. They haven't spent nearly as much time reading your word or praying to you as I have. They're cheaters on their income tax. They're tithing in their spouses. They're liars and gossips. And that guy in the back row, well, you know he's all those things and more. On the other hand, I'm here to set a good example for them. I'm constantly reading your word and praying. I out-tithe everyone by miles. It's a good thing I'm here, Lord, so they can see what a real Christian looks like. Now, I hope you'd be shocked and appalled and throw me out of my ear. I also hope that you would think that that would be beneath me to pray such a prayer. And yet, Jesus tells a story of a man who prays just that. But as with many parables... We have domesticated it. Since we know it so well, we've kind of lost the shock factor that Jesus brings to it. One way, I suppose, we could recapture it is to to substitute the characters uh, in this parable. Maybe to substitute maybe the name Billy Graham or Mother Teresa for the Pharisee. And no, someone like Adolf Hitler for the tax collector. And then you get to understand a little bit of the shock of the scene that unfolds when these two pray. Let's look at that, verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now this, this parable has, a long, has long been considered a simple story about pride, humility, and the proper attitude for prayer. And those themes are certainly present. But a closer look uncovers a more weighty theological issue. Righteousness. Righteousness. I'm going to do something I don't usually do, but if you have your your sermon outlines, um, turn to the back. And there you see a structure that's written out. And don't worry that you're going to miss a blank. I don't have any blanks for this section, so we can spend some time talking about it. But this is a structure of a parable put together by Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey taught for 30-plus years in the Middle East. And one of his areas of specialty was the parables of Jesus. And he would actually go around to villages in the Middle East and, and ask how they heard those parables. And he learned the cultural background of those parables from that. He also 
took some of those parables and actually outlined them to help us understand some things. There are, there are certain ways in which, even in the first century, authors would, would try to get their meaning across by the way they structured stories. And, and the, the gospel writers were no different, and Jesus was no different. And, and so I want to look at the structure that I think is particularly notable for this particular parable. So just take a look at that. You'll notice that it is uh, seven stanzas. He calls it a, a seven stanza parabolic ballad, but it's just a seven stanza parable. And what you notice is that the, the stanzas are kind of parallel, or maybe you could say they mirror each other. For example, stanzas one and seven mirror each other. Stanza one, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Stanza seven, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home or literally went down, justified before God. So what we see in stanza one is two go up to the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Stanza seven, two go down from the temple, a tax collector and a Pharisee. So they're just in reverse order. Then you see in 2 and 6 a similar thing. We see the, the prayer of the Pharisee and then the prayer of the tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. So we get a sense of his manner. He stood by himself. And we get a sense of his prayer. And then in the sixth stanza, we get a sense of the same thing with the tax collector. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then if you look at stanzas 3 and 5, they do a similar thing, only this time it's, both of them are about the tax collector. One is the image that the tax collector had, and particularly in the mind of the Pharisee. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So notice he's lumping the tax collector in with robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. That's what, that's what they were thought of in that day. That's the image that people in this Pharisee had of him. But then look at the reality in, in stanza 5. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. The reality is that this man is, is crushed by his sin and, and, and is humble before God. Now, when you see structures like this, and it happens often, in, especially in the New Testament, uh, what happens is when you have these different parallels then there's often a central theme that has no, or a central part that has no parallel. And that stands a four. And when you find that, you found the theme of the passage, the theme of the story. So what's the theme of this story? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That doesn't sound like much of a theme of a story. But what it does is it points to the Pharisee's self-righteousness. His self-righteousness. This is what he thinks of righteousness. All about what he did. And if you're not quite sure that doesn't sound like the theme of this story, then you just go to the beginning and the end where it's verified. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So already we're told this is a parable about righteousness and then in verse, or then in stanza seven, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Justified as a term of righteousness. So that's what this story is about. Um, now you can turn back to your, your sermon outlines if you wish. 
So now let's get into the setting. I just want to give you that background to say this is what we're talking about. This is a story about righteousness. And how is righteousness achieved, if it can even be achieved? So let's look at the setting. They're in the temple, and while we don't hear about them, there are other worshipers present. In our day, when we think about prayer, we usually think about it as private devotions for the most part, except like tonight when we have a prayer service. But in the New Testament Jewish culture, it was almost always public. You may be praying uh, by yourself, but you're praying with a whole bunch of other people in, in the midst of a temple setting. So what we learn here is, <clears throat> if you, you look at uh, verses 10 through 13, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, but the tax collector stood at a distance. So the fact that these two go up to and down from the temple at the same time denotes a public worship service. You would never see these two together otherwise. Undoubtedly, it was either the morning or the afternoon sacrifice of atonement in the temple which was done every day, twice a day. The worshipers would gather for prayer around the altar after the sacrifice and while the incense was burned. And notice in particular the positioning of the two. The Pharisee stands by himself near the altar, the center of the worship. He's apart from others, standing by himself, probably a gesture of religious superiority. The tax collector stands far off, way in the back, not even daring to draw near to the altar. New Testament scholar Amy Jo Levine calls these, rightly calls these men caricatures. Caricatures. That is, they are not typical of either group they represent. Now, in our familiarity with the parable, we, we already look with sympathy on the tax collector. But Jesus' Jewish audience would have been just the opposite. Their sympathy and respect would be with the Pharisee. He was the Billy Graham or the Mother Teresa of their culture. Looked up to. Uh, definitely the go-to person if you wanted to talk about, uh, about religion. His actions. Sort of like I tried to emulate when I started with the prayer uh, this morning. His actions would have utterly shocked them. And for that matter, the tax collector's actions would also have utterly shocked them. So let's look at, for a moment at these two men. First, the self-righteous man. This man has already been described in verse 9, lumped together with those who are confident of their own righteousness and looking down on others. He's standing aloof and praying aloud. That's the first shock of the parable because this is not the way a Pharisee would normally act. Understand that when Jesus takes on the Pharisees, he's taking on a small percentage of Pharisees who are, who are extra radical, extra conservative, extra legalistic. The same types of Pharisees that other Pharisees were criticizing. Jesus was joining in that in-house criticism. And so this is not typical of a Pharisee. This is not the way a Pharisee would act or pray. 
You look at that and it says the, the first, he stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Jewish prayer usually focused on thanking God for his gifts and offering petitions for one's needs. But this caricature of a Pharisee incorporates neither in his prayer. He apparently has no needs. And when he thanks God, he's only thanking God for himself and his righteousness, which he's done on his own in his mind. Rather, he spends all his time indicting the sinners around the altar, and particularly that tax collector cowering off to the side or to the back. He throws out condemnatory words, whether true or not. Perhaps it makes him feel superior. In a sense, his prayer is more like a self-advertisement, a billboard to instruct his religious inferiors. This is how you should live life with God, he's saying. He brags not only about keeping the law. Keeping the law would have been fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement and tithing on, on certain uh, things. But he talks about actually exceeding the law. He wasn't fasting just once a year. He was fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays as a, was typical of the more legalistic rab, rabbis and Pharisees. And he is tithing on everything. Now, he may measure it down to the smallest amount to make sure he doesn't go over 10%, but he's tithing on everything. But then verse 12, as we noted, forms the climactic center of the parable. Everything leads up to it. The Pharisee taking the lead, going up to the temple, standing by himself, putting down the unrighteous tax collector, and proclaiming himself righteous before God. Now comes the dramatic turning point, along with our second major shock of the parable. The tax collectors were, for lack of a, a better image, the Adolf Hitlers of Jewish society. That's saying a lot. So you wouldn't expect them to be found in the temple, much less praying repentantly. Now the major themes begin to repeat, but with a difference. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the tax collector stands in stark contrast to the Pharisee far off from the altar. And his self-perception is very different from the Pharisee's perception of him, or for that matter, the Pharisee's self-perception. He beats his chest, an action done only in times of extreme anguish, usually mourning, and then usually done only by women. And he prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. These words clearly refer to what's going on there in that worship service. The atonement sacrifice is being offered. And he's watching it from a distance. The slaughtering and cutting up of the sacrificial lamb. The priest going into the holy place to burn incense as he offers a prayer for the people and then coming out and announcing God's forgiveness and God's blessing on the people. The bringing of the sacrifice to the altar to be burned. Kenneth Bailey imagines the scene. He says, One can almost smell the pungent incense, hear the loud clash of cymbals, and see the great dense cloud of smoke rising from the burnt offering. 
The tax collector is there. He stands afar off, anxious not to be seen, sensing his unworthiness to stand with the participants. In brokenness, he longs to be part of it all. He yearns that he might stand with the righteous. In deep remorse, he strikes his chest and cries out in repentance and hope, Oh God, let it be for me. Make atonement for me, a sinner. There in the temple, this humble man, aware of his own sin and unworthiness, with no merit of his own to commend him, longs that this great dramatic atonement sacrifice might apply to him. And then the last stanza tells us that indeed it does. Indeed it does. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The service is over, and now the tax collector is in the the lead. Jesus telling us that he has been made righteous, but not this Pharisee. In essence, this Pharisee was wasting his time, and I suppose wasting God's time, going through a religious ritual that he didn't believe he needed and not really participating in it. For while the sacrifice of the lamb is made for the sins of the people, only those who are broken of heart can come in their unworthiness and be made right with God. Exaltation is legitimately only an act of God, and only the humble can receive it. Self-exalters need not apply. So for those who are self-righteous in the audience, remember, Jesus it tells us, Jesus' audience, to, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, they're now asked to consider how righteousness is achieved. Jesus proclaims that a gift of God made possible by the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb, and he does so knowing full well that in a short time, he is going to be that final an ultimate lamb of God who dies for the sins of the people. And so he reminds the people that the only way they can achieve righteousness is the righteousness that Jesus has achieved through his death on the cross as well as his righteous life. And righteousness can be received only by those who don't think they deserve it, who trust in God's grace And not in their own righteousness, but trust only in the righteousness of Jesus that has been credited to them when he died for their sins. So Jesus' question to the audience is, which one of these people are you like? What is your view of righteousness? What is your view of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done for us? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for coming to live for us and show us what a righteous life looks like, but then also dying for us to take the penalty for our unrighteousness and get credit to us the righteousness that only you truly have. We pray that, that we might not come, even, even if we've been members of a church for, for our whole lives, that we might not come before you thinking that we've done it all.
thinking that we're better than the next person, but that we might come before you humble like this tax collector and knowing that it's only for, by your grace, by your sacrifice, that we can claim righteousness and claim eternity with God. We thank you that you're a God who preserves us in that promise when we have accepted it by faith in you. And we pray that that might color how we view other people, color how we view our relationship with you, and color how we should live life until that time that you take us home and into eternity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by acknowledging that it is not what my hands have done that saved my guilty soul. Not what my hands have done. It's number 624 in the Lift Up Your Heart, so the words will be on the screen. Let's stand and sing the three stanzas.